0: This is Professor Allen and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select based on how I was darn well feeling when I decided to pick a book for this episode. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 190th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at the Maze Agency number 12 from Innovation, cover dated May 1990. But first... A little feedback. And we start a couple episodes back when we doomtastically covered FF361, me and Kirk Spencer. On that one, Sir Manuel Carmona had some thoughts. Great episode. Great conversation. I have to say that when I heard y'all mention Candace Cameron Bure playing Sue Storm, I smiled. And then I literally laughed out loud when you made the comment about the gazebo. Any Hallmark Christmas movie fan, which I am, would immediately get that reference. Perfect, Manuel. I know that reference was for somebody. I'm just glad that it was you. Now, last time we talked about the first issue of the Falcon miniseries, and Manuel also commented on that one. Saying how much he loved the cover. I haven't read this, but if the interior art looks anything like that cover, I need to find this miniseries because that cover is fantastic. Billy D allowed us how some of the troublesome 80s isms that we mentioned during our coverage would probably regretfully keep him away. From the story. That is understandable, Billy. Sir Dr. Ange commented, agreeing that it was both a great issue and a great steal from the quarter box. Glad you pointed out the rape culture scene and how it is sort of just brushed by, as you say, that hasn't aged well. That said, I'm glad you covered this, if only to point out how far we have come in a relatively short period of time. People who think today's world is awful tend to ignore how truly terrible the past has been. Similarly, I don't think these things should be pulled out of publication, if only because then they can serve as history lessons. A warning that this was wrong then and it's wrong now points out that lesson, and it should be a lesson learned. I might add that I used poor representation in classic movies as lessons, when my kids were younger and we were watching TCM together. Thank you, Ange. Yes, every time and culture has its ideas that future folk will look back on askance, including many things that we say, do, and believe these days. And given the options of A, pulling old stuff like this off the shelves so they can never be seen again, or B, Editing out the bad stuff as if it was never there in the first place. Or see the content warning like Anne referenced. I'll take C, the content warning, every day of the week. Chris at Charlton Hero said he recently bought the Falcon trade. It was a real fun look at the character. Sean Rabansky thanked us for another enjoyable episode No, Sean, thank you for another enjoyable piece of feedback. And Sir I was Joe, told a story about why this issue is so special to him. Getting comics when I was little was a pretty big deal. My dad got me my first two. We rode the Greyhound growing up, and I was always excited by the changeover in Atlanta because that station had a comic rack my dad had a business trip and he was going to be stopping at that station and i begged him for a comic he rode the bus from atlanta to perry with this comic the falcon number 1 in his lap the character has been a favorite ever since this act of his has meant even more now that i can't appreciate it as an adult my dad was a good fella. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for sharing that. We all really appreciate that. Social media love for last episode came from Sir Sir Martin of Gray, who retweeted the episode with the comment, social media love. Well, there you go. And also, Chris Ouellette, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Vic and Phoenix, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Braid 1991, David Ace Gutierrez, Billy D from The Brave and the Bob, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Jeremiah the Notorious JJG, Soraya was Joe Half of the 21st Century Boys, Chris Leiden 7, Pat from the Long Box Crusade, A World on Fire an All-Star Squadron podcast. Sean from Secret Wars and Beyond, Longbox Review, Easy Comic Reader, Thor the Gooner who knows that North London will always be red. Spectrum 777, Doug Zavisha, Chris from Professor Frenzy, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, The Telltale Mind, Spy Vinyl, and Clinton from Coffee and Comics. Thanks for all of that, friends. Let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll be investigating the case of the Maze Agency, number 12. Hi, my name's Red, and I want to tell you about Transformers. My curiosity is aroused. Transformers Decepticons Transform and rise up Calling Autobots Calling Autobots This is a battle protocol Robots with emotions Robots Can die Arrest now playing on fanalspodcast.blogspot.com. And we're back. The Maze Agency number 12 had a cover price of $2.50, meaning that I got this comic at a very easy-to-calculate 90% discount. The cover of the issue by Adam Hughes and Rick Magyar is a wraparound cover on the front, In a dark nighttime scene, we see a blonde lady. This is Jennifer Mays herself. She has a gun in one hand and a briefcase in the other. Approaching her from the other side of the cover is a hidden figure, and we only see his outstretched hands. This person also has a gun in one hand and a briefcase in the other. It's moody. It's mysterious. I think it gets the job done. And in the interest of satisfying sir... Sir Martin, I will mention that I love this logo. The main character, you should know, her last name is spelled M-A-Y-S, Maze. The title of the comic makes a pun out of that M-A-Z-E, Maze Agency. And the letters of THE and Maze are connected, like a maze, and the M-A-Z-E have embedded in them lines that make for, that's right, a maze. The story, Murderer's Mask, was written by series creator Mike W. Barr with art from the cover team of Adam Hughes and Rick Magyar. We start with a splash page that serves as the promotional poster for this story. If this were a movie, this would be the one sheet in theaters. We have a windswept night, a mansion atop a hill, and a half mask, half skull image floating in front of us. At the bottom of the page, we see in shadows images of our lead characters, Jennifer Mays and Gabriel Webb. It's the type of poster slash splash slash cover shot that Adam Hughes will be known for later in his career. I'm going to handle the synopsis portion of this story a little differently than I normally do. I'm going to go over it pretty briefly, actually, and then talk more in-depth afterwards. We start the actual story by witnessing a theft, the theft of a mask in a glass case inside a museum. The mask was made from the face of a reclusive billionaire's long-dead wife. Three guards are killed in the effort. Private eye Jennifer Mays was hired by the reclusive billionaire Mr. Morgan to find the mask. We learn that he loved his wife Melantha very much. She died 32 years ago after giving birth to their third child. A world-famous artist, Edgar Hodgson, made a death mask of Melantha's face, and then the artist took his own life. Morrigan's assistant, Handers, gives Jennifer all the information she needs. Jennifer and her partner and boyfriend, Gabriel, or Gabe Webb, a true crime writer, meet with the three Morrigan children at Morrigan Industries. And this is the entire cast for the story. Handers, the assistant, and the three kids, Leander Jr., Theodore, and Melissa. And in a mystery story like this, this also makes these our four possible suspects. The kids rarely visit dear old dad, And they communicate just a few times a month via closed-circuit video screens. Think Skype or Teams or Zoom, about 20 years before any of that was a thing. And he is not impressed with how they're handling the family business. This is a family torn apart. Day or two later, Mr. Morgan contacts Jennifer between sneezes. From his cold, he tells her about the ransom demand he has just received for the mask. He is not going to the police, but is instead relying on Jennifer to get this done. And in the scene, reflected on the cover, the exchange is made. But moments after, the person's vehicle, the the person who made the exchange with Jennifer, that car explodes in a fireball. She and Gabe rush back to the mansion where it's all coming to a head. Morgan opens up the briefcase and is thrilled to see the mask, but Jennifer knocks it out of his hands just as it explodes. It has all been a very elaborate murder attempt and a very, very long con by the assistant, Handers, who is in fact the son of the artist who made the mask, Hodgson. And Handers, as he calls himself now, has long blamed Morrigan for his father's early death. The End. We're going to do more of a page-by-page analysis to sort of counter the shorter synopsis. And all that is because of the type of story this is. The mystery nature of it. And, in particular, the type of mystery that this series is. Because in the world of, of the mystery genre, there are, as there are in every other type of genre, sub-genres. And specifically, this is a fair play mystery. The Ellery Queen series maybe the most famous or successful or best exemplar of this type of mystery. This type of story, which all of the issues of the Maze Agency were, are these fair play mysteries. And what that means is that all the suspects and clues are given in the story. So the readers, or viewers, have a, quote, fair chance of solving the case along with the detective. Because we have all seen TV episodes or movies or read novels or comics where the solution, from our reader perspective, completely comes out of nowhere. There was, in fact, no way we could have figured it out because the clues were not there. That is much more common than this type of mystery. And that is specifically how Mike W. Barr pitched Maze Agency when he was uh, creating the series, that each issue would be a complete fair play mystery. Now, what I like to do with, with the synopses for most issues is to try to, in some way, recreate the reading experience for the listener, not like a full audio drama, I'm never going to compete with Ranger Gord and the Prayer of Justice podcast. But I do hope that the listener can follow along with the beats of the story, with the drama of the story, be shocked and surprised and entertained like a reader would. But that's really hard with a mystery, especially this type of mystery. So you either do the entire thing, and I may have mentioned this already, but I'm not Ranger Gord. Or you have to go short, like I did. Because once you start cutting, once you start editing, by nature, you cut out the unimportant parts. The unimportant parts of the mystery. And you sort of lose some of the fun, because the fun part of a fair play mystery is sifting the important from the unimportant stuff yourself. And a lot of it is subtle, and a lot of it also may be in the art. So trying to bring you along with the solving of the mystery, I thought was going to be tough. So this was a particularly tough nut to crack in terms of figuring out really how to cover this issue. I didn't mean to spend that long justifying my choice for how to do this comic, but there you go. Like I said, we're going to make up for the brevity of the synopsis by doing a more in depth, uh, page by page style discussion and analysis of the story. And we've already covered, well, the cover, but I do actually want to talk about the inside front cover, because there's a text piece about what is going on at Innovation Publishing, and that's an opportunity for me to talk about this specific volume, but also the publishing history of the Mays Agency. The title started at Comico before moving over to Innovation at Issue 8. It kept the numbering and wrapped up after Issue 23 in mid-1991. From what I could tell at the Grand Comics database, the 16 issues published by Innovation of the Maze Agency was the most issues that any Innovation title managed. Now, in 1998, Caliber Press put out three issues, and then in 2005, IDW released three more. And I don't know what has come of this next bit, but there was news, I want to say maybe around the start of COVID, that Scout Comics had planned to do a new series. And and all of these issues are written by Mike W. Barr. This is and always has been his baby. Now, the first page of the story after the cover splash, which is really, I guess, page two of the story, the page of the break-in that is totally silent. A nice touch. And I did not mention that we have a scene on page three with Gabe at his editor's office, the editor of Real True Detective Magazine. Gabe is pitching the museum robbery as a possible story for the true for this true crime rag. But the editor turns and down, of course. The irony is that he is later brought into the case via Jennifer. And this did not play into the plot itself, so I didn't mention it, but uh, the elder Mr. Morrigan is in a wheelchair. We aren't given any reason to think it is for any reason other than aging. But either way, it's not given an explanation. It just is, which I think can often be a good way of portraying a character in that situation. On pages six and seven, we get a nice number of panels chronicling the love story between Morrigan and Melantha. Two things here to mention. One is that the art and words do not contradict one part, and that is that the artist who makes the mask and then takes his own life. Since this is Morrigan narrating, I expected to see a contradiction, that we as readers would see something. Uh, But that doesn't seem to be the case. Reality seems to be, as we were told, that the artist just took his own life after making the mask, that there's no other mystery behind that fact. At this point, as he's relaying the story, Morrigan has a bouquet of roses in his lap and is smelling them, never having appreciated the aroma of a simple rose until she had taught him to. That fact comes back around at the end. We then have a romantic scene between Gabe and Jennifer. This is a key instrumental part of the series, the growing relationship between our two leads, because this is definitely a romantic detective title. And if you are thinking Remington Steele, I will point out on page nine when Gabe and Jennifer show up to interview the three adult children, Gabe introduces himself as a crime writer and then refers to Jennifer as, quote, my secretary, Miss Laura Holt, unquote. Uh, one piece of marketing speak that I saw for the Maze Agency collection made a moonlighting reference. Imagine Dave and Maddie as grown-ups. that copy read. So yes, clearly these are our influences. Also, I don't know if Dr. Ange has ever read this title, but Barr has also acknowledged the influence of the Thin Man movies, the the Nick and Nora characters, in terms of their relationship and banter, in terms of characterizing Jennifer and Gabe. I'd be curious if Ange sees some of that uh, were he to read The Maze Agency. That scene also has Webb completely buttoned up and wearing a fancy suit for this meeting, which is not how he usually dresses. He is often more rumpled or crumpled. It doesn't happen in this issue, but I recall him regularly wearing a college sweatshirt, for example, which contrasts with Jennifer, who is always dressed very stylishly. Now that scene, this scene with the siblings, pages 9 through 12, is a good time to talk about the art. Uh, and yes, this is some of Adam Hughes's earliest work, and they tried as best they could to keep him as the regular pencil for the title. Uh, there are some fill-ins, of course, as Hughes as always, had troubles maintaining a monthly schedule for doing interiors. Of course, career-wise, that has not exactly slowed him down much, as he has been a prolific and successful cover artist for the last, what, two, three decades? The key here is that all the characters look different. You can tell who is who. Lots of good faces and face acting. It's all solid, very solid. The original character designs for Gabe and Jennifer were actually done by Alan Davis, another very skilled artist, for a promotional version of the comic that Barr was shopping around to various publishers uh, before it found a home. But I do have to mention one odd bit of coloring. And I suppose that this is one of the issues that you might have with a small press company. And that is that Leander Jr. has consistently green-shaded hair. Like, bright green. Not quite Joker, but pretty darn close. And not because he's going punk. It's clearly a coloring issue. Like how Superman's hair has a blue tint at times, a shading choice that we've become used to. This fella's green hair, I'm not convinced that that's purposeful. But it is the same color completely as his sister's green dress and his brother's green vest. And it is in every scene that he is in, every rendering of this character. I can only assume that a limitation existed here, either in the area of technology, uh, the the print reproduction, or in the budgeting. Either they couldn't do the color they wanted, or they couldn't afford to do the color they wanted. I mean, that has to be it. Smack-dab in the middle of the issue... We get a four-page spread of house ads for Hero Alliance, Legends of the Stargazers, the first Maze Agency Collection, and Justice Machine. And actually, I do think the previous comments I just made about budgets and coloring apply here as well, as this four-page spread is black, white, and yellow on a couple pages and black, white, and blue on the others. The only truly four-colored image is a reproduction of a cover of May's Agency Issue 1. Again, this has to be a budget choice because it certainly is an odd artistic choice. But back to the story. Our leads talk about the experience they just had with the kids agreeing that the daughter gets the worst of it from her dad. And then they smooch. And this goes without saying, because we are talking Adam Hughes. But Jennifer Mays looks great. We then move a couple days later, a few days have passed, and a ransom demand has been made, and Morrigan has a cold. That is important. So on page 15, Jennifer pulls a great power move. Because At this point, my main experience with private eyes in fiction put them more in the Jim Rockford mode, as in barely able to scrape by, pay the bills, make a living. But Jennifer is not the stereotypical down-on-her-luck P.I. First, she has a great office with a great view. We don't get any of this backstory here in this issue, but I remember Jennifer coming from money. She had a wealthy upbringing, if I recall. So when Morrigan asks her to handle the admittedly dangerous job of paying the ransom money and recovering the mask, she agrees to do it at a fee of $10,000. And just as he calls that reasonable, she adds, per hour which is a little more than Rockford's $200 a day plus expenses. The assistant handers will make arrangements with the bank for Jennifer to pick up the cash as soon as he's done refilling the prescription for his cold meds. Both of those facts become important. And it is at this point in the story on page 16 of 26 that Jennifer reveals to handers that she has discovered that he is the son of the late artist, the man who made the mask. Anders admits that he went to work for Morrigan all those years ago to see if he was connected to his father's death, but found that no, that was not the case. And he also grew to like the man over the years. There's a funny bit when he claims that Morrigan treats him like a son. And after he leaves the room, Jennifer comments that that is not saying much. Then we get to the scene of the exchange and the two exploding briefcases. After the switcheroo, the two participants go their own way, and when Jennifer has gotten close to her car, she hears the explosion and then runs to see that the other car is on fire. Also, it's a bit complicated. I didn't mention it, but there were a couple of gunmen at that scene as well, and another person is killed This is the blackmailer cleaning up loose ends. When they get back to Morrigan's uh, manor, all three of the kids have arrived, and they realize that Jennifer is more than just a secretary. Good on them there. Now, each has an alibi for where they've been for the hour before when the exchange was going on, but none can verify those whereabouts. It's not until the elder Morrigan arrives and opens the case that it all falls into place. Opening the case activates a chemical detonator with a particular smell of plastique, which Jennifer recognized from across the room. She was able to knock the case out of his hand before it caught fire. The key was that because of Morrigan's cold, his sensitive nose was not able to smell the explosive. So that means that the two cases seem to be prepared, have been prepared, by the same person. And since Handers prepared the briefcase with the ransom money, well... And also the timing was perfect because the kids had not seen their dad in a few days since that video conference scene that we saw. And at that point, he did not have a cold. So the assistant Hander was the only man who knew that Morrigan had lost his sense of smell and would not instantly react when opening the briefcase. By the way, that last bit was figured out by Gabe, so it really was teamwork between our detectives that solved this one. And the final page has a nice few denouement. Morrigan tells Jennifer that she has earned her fee The old man invites the kids to stay overnight at the house, as they have a great deal to talk about. We sense that, if not reconciliation, then at least a thawing of the relationships may be on the horizon. And as our leads head to the helicopter for a ride home from the mansion, Webb wonders what his cut of her $10,000 an hour pay is going to be. She gives him a look, and he relents. The least you can do is pay for breakfast. I hope it's clear in how I described and discussed this, but in case it wasn't, just let me make this clear. I love this. Not just this issue. I love this series. It is one of my all-time favorites. Mike Barr writes solid mysteries, and for what it's worth, the one time that I met him at Akron Comic-Con, he was a really nice guy. But there is a real skill in compressing everything you need in a mystery. The crime, the suspects, all the clues, diversions, action, and a solution. In usually around 20 to 22 pages, this one was 26. I mean, that's tough. Like I said, that requires... A certain set of skills. The plots themselves need to work, they need to make sense, that's true in any mystery story. But what keeps you coming back, whether it's novel after novel, episode after episode, or issue after issue, is the characters. And in here you have a refreshing odd couple. And I mean that both in the way of how they are different, but still get along and work together. But also I say that to focus on the word couple. Because whatever word you want to use to describe their relationship, adult, mature, grown-up, realistic, the nature of the characters and the relationship, the light comedic romance of it all, it's just fresh, uh, refreshing. Because in this series, maybe, maybe, there was a two-parter or two in there, but the vast majority of these are complete one-and-dones. So there's no plot reason why you're driven to pick up the next issue. And in that setting, the characters and the relationship really have to carry that weight. And for me, it certainly worked back when I was collecting these fresh, and it still certainly works today. Now... I have to admit, in one way, I'm definitely biased towards this series. I have been a mystery fan for as long as I've been a reader. From Minute Mysteries to Encyclopedia Brown, Sherlock Holmes to Miss Marple, The Rockford Files, and Spencer for Hire, to the works of Sue Grafton and L.B. Hathaway, I am a fan of all of this stuff. But... I recognize that within comics, genre books aren't for everybody. To most readers, probably the majority of you listening to this very episode, comics equal superheroes. And that's cool. You do you. But as we like to say here at Relatively Geeky, comics are not a genre. They're a medium. A medium that can tell stories in any genre just like prose fiction or film can tell stories in any genre. And if you are interested in genres beyond heroes, especially if you're interested in detective comics, it's hard to beat any random issue of the Maze Agency. And in terms of just reading, you can pick up and read any random issue Highly recommended, especially, of course, I know what podcast this is, especially if you can find them cheap. So let's make this official. The verdict on the Maze Agency 12, a quality fair play mystery written by a very good comic book professional with art from a dynamic artist early in his career, among the very few issues of interior art. Done by Adam Hughes. A very fun read, a definite, no doubt, quarter bin steal. That wraps up our coverage of the Maze Agency number 12, bringing episode 190 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. Next time, we jump into the current millennia, which is actually not a place we visit all that often on this show. But we will be looking at Nightwing 128 from DC Comics, cover dated March 2007. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Detective Fiction, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarterback. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at geeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.